Hello, everyone. My name is Daniela, and I'm a second year PA student at Drexel University in Philadelphia. I'm graduating this December, and I have a big interest in emergency medicine and critical care, and I also find toxicology super fascinating. I have been working on this graduate project for many months now, and it's on beta blocker overdose. I'm finally excited to see this come to fruition. I hope you enjoy the ride and learn a thing or two about the current and emerging treatments for beta blocker overdose. So throughout this podcast, I will be discussing the different therapies for beta blocker overdose, and I'll also be using real life case reports. And hopefully this will bridge a gap in provider familiarity with the more novel beta blocker overdose treatment. Before we get started, I want to talk a little bit about the basics. I want to briefly discuss beta blockers and what they are used for. I know this may be a review for most of you listening, but in my book, there's never too much review. So let's get started. Beta blockers, they're considered adrenergic antagonists. So what does that mean? That means that they prevent beta receptor activation and they produce negative chronotropy and inotropy. They primarily affect beta-1 and beta-2 receptors in the heart. Beta-1 receptors regulate myocardial tissue and contraction rate, while beta-2 receptors regulate smooth muscle tone as well as vascular and bronchial relaxation. So because of these mechanisms, the common pathologies that use beta blockers are for folks with heart failure, hypertension, coronary artery disease, dysrhythmias, migraines, and many, many more. In 2019, there was a little under 3,000 beta blocker overdoses in children and over 7,000 in adults. These are often in result of intentional ingestions as a suicide attempt by adults or exploratory ingestions by children accidentally taking their parents' or grandparents' medication. Or there might also be patient error with double or triple dosing, especially those with Alzheimer's or dementia. Symptoms to look out for are bradycardia, hypotension, and decreased systemic vascular resistance. Beta blocker overdose can also lead to CNS deficits, including seizures, respiratory depression, or coma. These symptoms are not too common because they're only for lipophilic beta blockers, such as propanolol or metoprolol, because they're able to cross the blood-brain barrier. But this information will be useful a little bit later. First, I'm going to speak about the most common treatment for beta blocker overdose, and I will begin with the case report to get the ball rolling. Hang tight! Throughout this podcast, I'm going to go over three different case reports, and I just want to say that these are real-life examples from several publications I've been studying all year. I will link these articles in the show notes for you to take a look at. Now let's get on with the first case report. A 21-year-old male with a past medical history of insulin-dependent diabetes and chronic depression comes to the emergency department after he ingested 40 tablets of 40 milligrams of propanolol in a suicide attempt. His father explained that his son seemed super out of it and brought him to the emergency department. 
On arrival to the ED, the patient was somnolent but arousable with shallow respirations. His pupils were equal, round, and reactive to light without any focal neurological deficits. His heart rate was about 50 beats per minute and his systolic BP was 60. The patient was then intubated nasotracheally. What would be the next step in this management? I'll give you guys some time to think. For those of you who have experienced treating beta blocker overdose, you may have shouted out glucagon, which is the correct next step. Good job. So yes, the glucagon was started next. The providers infused 50 milliliters of D50 along with one milligram of glucagon. The one milligram dose of glucagon did not show any improvements to the patient's heart rate or blood pressure. So then another three milligrams of glucagon was pushed. Then the patient's heart rate immediately increased to the low 80s and his BP increased to 150 over 100. Crazy, right? The patient became more responsive and then he was transferred to the medical ICU. In the MICU, he got a continuous glucagon infusion, which was started at one milligram per hour and it was titrated down and then finally discontinued after 12 hours of therapy. The patient was extubated with a blood pressure ranging from 110 to 150 systolic over 66 ranging to 98 diastolic with a heart rate ranging from 60 to 70 beats per minute and respirations 16 to 20 breaths per minute. The patient was discharged the following evening after admission with a heart rate of around 65. So now that we got the first case out of the way, I wanna talk about glucagon and its place in beta blocker overdose. Glucagon is actually considered the first-line treatment and it's the most conventional for beta blocker overdose. It's often paired with adjunctive therapies such as atropine, epinephrine, calcium, gluconate, and IV fluids whenever necessary. Glucagon also has inotropic and chronotropic properties and I will explain to you why. But first, I want to go over cyclic adenosine monophosphate, or cyclic AMP. Cyclic AMP is an intracellular messenger of many different hormones and cells. But the main thing I want you all to know is that it helps control the beating frequency and contraction force of the heart. Cyclic AMP is typically signaled through the beta adrenergic pathway. So in beta blocker overdose, cyclic AMP is not signaled. So what's so good about glucagon is that it can signal cyclic AMP to do its thing through a different pathway with different receptors. And as I mentioned before, glucagon is the most well-known treatment for beta blocker overdose, but there are other therapies that can be used as well, especially for more complicated or refractory cases. The next case report will be a great example of this. This will be our second out of three total case reports. So let's get into the second case. A 54-year-old female with a past medical history of hypertension presented to the emergency department after ingesting an unknown amount of 50 milligrams of atenolol along with 12.5 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide 
and 10 milligrams of amlodipine in a suicide attempt. On initial examination, the patient was lethargic with a BP of 72 over 53, a heart rate of 50, a respiratory rate of 18 on 100% room air. Her pupils were four millimeters bilaterally and non-reactive to light. S1 and S2 were heard with no murmurs. Lung sounds were heard bilaterally with equal effort with no crackles or wheezes. Abdomen was soft with mild tenderness and without guarding or rebound tenderness. The patient was immediately intubated and admitted to the MICU. In the MICU, she was given IV fluids, activated charcoal with a glucagon infusion of 5 milligrams an hour. Calcium gluconate and atropine were also added, but there was no response to the patient's blood pressure or heart rate. Blood pressure support was initiated with infusions of phenylephrine, epinephrine, and dopamine, but that did not provide any improvements as well. What would we do next in our management? This may come as a surprise to you, but the provider switched to using a high-dose insulin protocol for refractory resuscitation. The patient was started at one unit per kilogram per hour of regular insulin with no improvements and then was titrated up to four units per kilogram per hour along with a D10 infusion. But before I continue, I wanna dive a little bit deeper on high-dose insulin since this may be a new concept for you. The mechanism of high-dose insulin is that it has positive inotropic and chronotropic properties just like glucagon, but it also assists the myocardial uptake of carbohydrates, which is the preferred fuel substrate of the heart when it's stressed. We can never forget the Krebs cycle, right? Insulin also has vasodilatory properties, which is super great for perfusion to vital organs, and there are even studies that show insulin helps reverse metabolic acidosis and help increase the response to catecholamines such as epinephrine or norepinephrine, which I'm sure we can deep dive into all this information, but that will probably be a whole other episode or two. But these are just the basics that I wanted to cover. I also wanna point out that because we are using insane doses of insulin, there are some lab values we wanna trend very often. Can you think of a few? I'll wait. If any of your choices were glucose and potassium, you are correct. Insulin can cause hypoglycemia and hypokalemia. Now let's get back to our case. The patient's potassium and glucose levels were monitored and corrected every 30 minutes. There was no improvement in blood pressure and heart rate with the four units per kilogram per hour insulin dosing. Also, the glucagon and the vasopressors were at the max dose and the lipid emulsion therapy was also started which is a therapy I will discuss with you guys later on. So none of these therapies are working. What should we do? The last tool in the toolbox is increasing the dose of insulin therapy. The providers titrated up the insulin dose to a max dose of 10 units per kilogram per hour, which is an insane amount of insulin. But there was finally an improvement in the patient's blood pressure and heart rate. Over the next eight hours, the pressors were weaned off and the mean arterial pressure of the patient stayed above 65. 
and over the next six hours, the patient was completely weaned off all pressors. The patient was then extubated on day six and was discharged shortly after. Finally, some success. But what I want to point out is that the patient in this case did not respond to the four units per kilogram per hour dose, but made major improvements with the titration to 10 unit per kilogram per hour. This is something I found super interesting and what lit the fire under my feet to do more research on this topic. It will be super cool to keep track of this research on high dose insulin for cardiogenic shock to help improve the morbidity and mortality in our patients. Overall, high-dose insulin therapy is making big strides in the cardiogenic shock and toxicology world. But there is one more therapy I want to discuss before we wrap this podcast up. I mentioned this therapy earlier, and it has been seen as an adjunctive therapy to glucagon or high-dose insulin. It's called intravenous lipid emulsion therapy. I will dive right into this with our last and final case. A 58-year-old male with a past medical history of meth abuse, persistent AFib, cardiomyopathy, and mitral regurgitation is brought to the emergency department by ambulance about one hour after ingesting 7.5 grams of his metoprolol tartrate. EMS reported that the patient was alert and oriented at the scene with diaphoresis, cyanosis, and weak radial pulses. Initial BP was 85 over 46, with a pulse of 100 and an EKG showing AFib. On arrival to the ED, the patient remained weak and diaphoretic with a BP of 74 over 43 and an O2 saturation of 99. At this time, the patient received 1.5 milligrams of atropine, 6 milligrams of glucagon, and a continuous infusion of dopamine at 10 micrograms per kilogram per minute. There was some improvement in the patient's mean arterial pressure but the patient was becoming severely bradycardic with mental status change, and that resulted in the inability to protect the airway, which then called for rapid intubation. Shortly after intubation, the patient developed a cardiac arrest with pulseless electrical activity, and CPR was performed, and one milligram of epinephrine was pushed, and norepinephrine infusion began at 0.1 micrograms per kilogram per minute. During this time, 100 units of regular insulin an hour was started, and he also was started on 100 milliliters of D50. There was no improvement in the patient's hemodynamic status, so the next tool in the toolbox was intravenous lipid emulsion therapy. I spoke about this a little bit earlier, but this is the therapy that is also being used with glucagon and high-dose insulin. 150 milliliters of 20% of intralipid emulsion was infused. Another milligram of epi was pushed and the patient spontaneously opened his eyes. CPR was stopped and there was return of spontaneous circulation. The patient then received another bolus of 150 milliliters of 20% intralipid emulsion, three milligrams of calcium gluconate for stabilizing the cardiac membrane and 100 units of regular insulin. A bedside echo was done, which showed global hypokinesis in all four chambers, and so the regular insulin infusion was titrated up 
based on cardiac response. The patient was then transferred to the MICU for the next 22 hours. He continued on with his insulin. The patient was discharged five days after admission without any neurological deficits. So this concludes my last and final case. But before I go, I want to discuss how lipid emulsion therapy works. There's still so much research that needs to be done on lipid emulsion therapy and cardiogenic shock, but there are a few theories that hypothesize how the mechanism works. The lipid sink theory hypothesizes that lipid emulsion is thought to sequester compounds that are highly lipophilic, such as propanolol or metoprolol, which is what this patient ingested. Earlier on in this podcast, I mentioned these two drugs as being able to cross the blood-brain barrier and cause CNS effects. So this therapy will prevent the drug from reaching the site of action. It also provides a fatty acid substrate for the stress myocardial cells, which will work by increasing inotropy and chronotropy. Oftentimes, it is used with insulin as an adjunctive therapy for the best outcomes in morbidity and mortality. Overall, each therapy discussed today has its place in resuscitation efforts in cardiogenic shock from beta blocker overdose. I'm sure in the near future, there will be plenty of research coming our way that I'll be looking out for. I hope overall you learned something about beta blocker overdose and the different types of therapies that are being used today, some more conventional and some not. This project is my last major assignment in my physician assistant school journey and I would love for you to complete the survey in the show notes as an evaluation. Lastly, I just want to remind you guys that there's resources in the show notes that I use for this project. I hope you all have a great day today and keep working towards your goals in school and in your careers. Take care.